0: Tell us about the, the Covington kids and, and how that came about and how you would connect that to CNN's behavior when it comes to Kyle Rittenhouse.
1: It, it's the power of the press to use their superior access to a broader range of people, a louder mic, you might say, to basically try to suppress dissident information by showing they could smear anyone, anywhere, anyplace. If you could destroy uh, some kids, and that's all they were, kids from Covington, Kentucky, small town, bedroom community of Cincinnati just across the, the river, if you could destroy them overnight, destroy their entire futures overnight, then you were sending a message of what you could do to any American that stuck their head up whose politics they didn't like for any reason.
0: The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson here of Peak Prosperity, and we have an incredible interview for you today. What are the legal issues surrounding vaccines, vaccine mandates, COVID, workplace rules, all of that? We have, honestly, one of the best people that you could possibly have to talk to us about this. He's smart. He gets it. He cares. Today, we're talking with Robert Barnes of Barnes Law. Robert, welcome to the program. It's good to have you here.
1: Absolutely. Glad to be here.
0: All right. Well, listen, I was in Phoenix, and I heard you talk, and that was the first time I'd heard you talk live. I was blown away. And uh, really what caught me was the whole structured legal framework and how you thought about this. I think people need to know about our legal remedies right now. I think people in this country need to understand what they can do. Many of them are desperate for this information. I get I get pinged almost daily by people asking me, help, I'm in the military, my son's going to college, uh, something, 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 and they want to know what they can do. So... Let me start right here. We're going to talk about COVID and vaccines in particular. Let me start with some punchlines. Robert, are these vaccine mandates legal?
1: I don't believe they are. And I mean, the mandates are coming at different levels. You're getting mandates from the Biden administration. I, I definitely think those don't have any constitutional or statutory basis or legal authority. Then you have the vaccine mandates being issued by various local governments, though there have been fewer of those. Uh, though, and including in California school system and some other places, the Beverly Hills firefighters that they're trying to fire, you know, things like Mm -hmm. that. uh, Those are already facing litigation as well. Then there's the vaccine mandates being issued by private employers for the first time in the history of the country. Uh, I don't believe those are legal in general. But at a minimum, they have to accommodate for religious exceptions uh, and medical accommodations. And I think they cannot discriminate based on perceived disability under the American with Disabilities Act and its analog provisions in various state laws. So in my view, most of the vaccine mandates uh, either have meaningful exceptions to them that basically allow them to be negated by the individual uh, or don't meet legal standards or constitutional scrutiny at all. The only risk factor is will American courts recognize and uphold that or will they cower in the face of so-called pandemic emergencies as they have done in large part today.
0: Now, I really want to get into that foundational stuff because that was the stuff really blew my mind. I didn't understand about the past prior precedents, the Nuremberg Code and all this stuff that sounds before it had been a little vague to me. You made it crisp. Let's get to that foundational stuff in just a minute first. uh, So. Uh, When I'm looking at the CDC website, they themselves say, oh, hey, by the way, if you've had a bad reaction to this first shot or you have a history of anaphylactic reactions secondarily to vaccines in general or to any particular adjuvant or compound that's in any vaccine that's being issued now, you shouldn't get another vaccination. However, when I turn then and I, I hear about people from the military or from people I know who had bad first reactions, bad myocarditis, in bed for a week, really horrible reactions, they have been unable, almost without exception, to get any exemption from that. What do we make of that? The CDC says you shouldn't have a second shot. Doctors and other authorities will not issue an exemption. What, how do we close that gap?
1: it's extraordinary what's happening and what we built up over a century a sort of never again principle since the nuremberg code which was we were going to have informed consent going forward for medicine period for health treatment period we weren't going to invade anyone's privacy without them having enough information to make a meaningfully consensual decision not coerced as to their what goes into their own body and experiments concerning various aspects of medicine and yet Almost all of those provisions are being ignored by different groups, whether it's employers, the military, state or federal governments, because, as you note, the CDC's own language, in fact, CDC also had language that said you can't mandate this just a few months ago, you know, before all of this, all of a sudden they launched the mandates. Uh, So the uh, there's no question that there's a bunch of people who even the CDC says should not take this vaccine. Um, and yet people are being forced to take it against their will and against their own doctor's instructions at times. And that's part of the problem is there's been such a rush to force this on people. They're not following the most elemental medical or legal limitations on their course of conduct.
0: So you used a word a second ago, uh, coercion. What is coercion? How is that legally defined?
1: So historically with the Nuremberg Code, it informed consent meant uh, that you didn't have any limitation or you weren't forced to do it. It meant truly you had all the information you needed to uh, to make to be able to make the decision yourself and that you did so on your own voluntary free will, not because it was a condition of access to basic public services or a condition of access to, uh, public, to employment or anything like that, because that's then coercive uh, and it's no longer consensual. And we've developed a large amount of law around the principle of informed consent, including in the tort of battery and assault in the United States that dates back more than a century. And we started, we realized the horrors of what happened when we let the state run amok with medical experimentation because of how the Nazis misused and abused it. And that's what led to the Nuremberg Code. And we said these principles are so universally recognized recognize that we can actually execute people for violating them, even though the Nuremberg Code was not written down anywhere in Germany during the Nazi era. And so that was our our, our, our the way we came back to saying these are the standards that are going to govern us moving forward. And unfortunately, many of those standards have been completely abandoned over the past year uh, by a wide range of state and private actors uh, in the name of uh, pandemic fear and concern. And there was no pandemic exception to the Constitution in the United States, even though multiple pandemics raged around the time of our founding. Uh, and there's no pandemic exception to the Nuremberg Code, and which is, again, international just Cogan's law that's considered recognized law in any civilized society, regardless of what else is written on the books. But we're seeing the most disturbing attack on these principles uh, in our history since the 1930s.
0: Now, obviously, there have been a lot of... Um encroachments and usurpations on the Constitution, at least from my perspective, civil asset forfeiture, a variety of things that I don't think pass. What to me, I'm no constitutional scholar, but the good news is I can read it and understand it. And so I feel somewhat competent as a citizen of the U.S. to say, oh, I think I get this. But there was no pandemic exception. And people have noted that that George Washington himself who predates the Constitution, was fighting a smallpox pandemic and and took a variety of measures around that. And even with that history and background and taking some measures that people would recognize today in terms of travel and letting people in and out of, of an encampment and uh, how they how they behaved with that, they understood that, still didn't write it in. And you're suggesting that wasn't an oversight. They knew it. They looked at it and said, we're not making an exception here. Exactly.
1: They understood the great danger that an emergency exception provided, that ultimately such an exception would swallow every other right and responsibility that the government had towards its own people or citizens. This was also revealed in part of the reason for the establishment of the Nuremberg Code was the failure of the great Weimar Constitution of Germany. The Weimar Constitution was considered the most liberal, forthright, uh, civil liberties-oriented constitution in the history of Europe at the time. And so the question is, how did that constitution give rise to the legal empowerment of the of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis? It's because built within it was an emergency exception. Right. And it said, you know, the uh, chancellor could declare an emergency and ignore the rest of the constitution. Many Canadians are finding out what happens when there's those kind of clauses somewhere buried in the constitution. You end up like what the old parable in Mexico is, which is a con- you know, constitution made of paper, sword made of steel. Uh, their points about Mexican constitution had some great provisions. They just have not been enforced very often over the last century in terms of civil rights and civil liberties. And that's what we're witnessing now. And there has been more and more judges in the United States and parts of uh, other parts of the world that have warned about this, but not enough have rallied to the cause and rallied to the defense of the constitution because the greatest threat to the constitution has always been emergency uh, exceptions. And that's why our founders said no way because they understood how dangerous it was. But we our own Supreme Court has frequently resorted to it to deprive people of civil liberties, going back to the first ever vaccine mandate case to ever reach the Supreme Court in 1905.
0: So let's talk about that camel nose under the tent creeping authoritarianism. I was just reading this past week that uh, Governor Hochul of, of New York had decided that racism is now a matter of medical emergency because she loves her medical emergency powers and is tucking racism under a medical emergency clause. Is that an example of what happens when the camel gets its nose under the tent?
1: Right? Absolutely. Like what's coming up before the United States Supreme Court is deciding whether the Biden administration can use emergency exception power, uh, things they're calling performance standards, procurement standards, administrative efficacy standards. That's their pretext for this massive vaccine mandate. And all of it is predicated on emergency exceptions, why they didn't have a notice and comment, didn't have citizen petitions, didn't go through the legislative branch, didn't go through the judicial branch, didn't have meaningful hearings, didn't allow dissident opinions to be heard, uh, didn't allow meaningful scientific research and review to even occur before these mandates were imposed, uh, including, you know, a head start on federal contractors, federal employees, United States military, through the OSHA on every worker that worked in any big company in the country, is all based on emergency exceptions. They're all citing that they're saying, this is an emergency, we got to do what we got to do, even though we're now two years into this emergency. And so, I mean, in, in the state of New York, they're considering expanding their emergency power to include the ability to arrest and detain people. Based on perceptions of threat. We have quarantine law that's well established that has to prove clear and convincing evidence of imminent risk for which a quarantine is the only possible solution. They're wanting to scratch and scrap all of that. And you look at climate change politics. I mean, climate change could allow under the guise of a climate emergency to govern, you know, landlord tenant relationships to govern what you could how you could build your own home whether you have to tear down your own home what kind of fuel you can use what kind of car you could drive so you can imagine how scary that emergency power can be and that's why the how the supreme court handles these vaccine mandates goes way past the vaccine it goes it goes to the core of constitutional liberty and whether what our founders
0: set up lasts or dies well what 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 cases before the court right now i know there's a big one we're expecting a decision soon possibly by the time this comes out Uh, what's the case and how do you read the court in this example
1: so the two big arguments they're going to be having on january 7th is oral argument on the osha mandate and on the medicare mandate there's also the head start mandate there's also the federal contractor mandate there's also the federal employee mandate these are who knows what other mandate
0: they're trying i'm sorry robert this is these are vaccine mandates correct
1: Yes, these are all vaccine mandates. Right. So under the guise of, hey, we need to make sure we have adequate procurement policies that, are, that have high efficacy in the federal contracting context, they required anybody who receives a penny of federal government money to impose a vaccine on their own employees. Uh, this, then a Head Start, same thing. If you want any more Head Start funding, not only was there a vaccine ma- mandate, there was a mask mandate going down to two years old, even if you were playing outside. Uh, if Your parent wouldn't be allowed to pick you up unless they were masked. Uh, Things like that with no with the one size fits all sledgehammer OSHA mandate similarly said all employers with more than 100 employees had to impose a testing requirement that there was an exception for only if the person was vaccinated so it became de facto a vaccine mandate. Vaccine mandates being imposed on the military, even though right now there's a major class action suit about the anti-malarial drug that the military had been forced to take for many decades, turned out to literally cause madness according to the allegations of the suit, and that the uh, people in the military and people in the drug industry knew about it and covered it up for decades. And now we're gonna mandate another drug on them uh, that when the, their age profile doesn't appear to you know fit the profile of a high risk group within for COVID-19, Uh, The National Guard is being forced to take the uh, vaccine in various states. Uh, That's being litigated currently in Oklahoma. But what the Supreme Court will address is the upfront, the initial cases are the OSHA mandate and the Medicare mandate. So it was a mandate on any facility providing, uh, receiving any Medicare payments. Um, Some of us always warned the the federal government was going to put a lot of strings on those checks they wrote, and that's precisely what's taken place. And this is the most extraordinary Mandate in its history. But if the Supreme Court says they can do so, as the lower courts have noted, that means the Biden administration can do whatever it wants under with just executive fiat, because it can just say we have an emergency. We're we're responsible for performance of various aspects of government. So we're going to require, you know, all of a sudden we're going to impose environmental standards on everybody um, that could restructure the entire economy and way of life for people. And so this will not end here if uh, if those of us that support civil liberties and constitutional structure uh, don't prevail. That's why it's so critical that we must prevail, because this
0: goes way past vaccines and COVID-19. So if I understood you right, then there's a precedent that possibly gets set here, which allows executive emergency decrees to basically be a sole source of of fiat law that comes forward. It bypasses all sorts of things, legislative bodies, electoral processes. I don't know, things that seem like they've been part of our country's history to point to date. I don't know. Is that accurate? Absolutely.
1: I mean, it's what a federal judge said recently in in, in joining the Head Start mandate imposed on Head Start facilities. He says, this is about the separation of powers and whether it will continue to exist in the United States. We framed a unique government that said one way to check the abuse of governmental power is to diversify and diffuse its power into different branches and that those branches own jealousy of power would lead them to check another branch's excess of power now unfortunately in the emergency context there's a history of even american courts failing uh, from the vaccine mandate to forced sterilizations to forced detention camps between 1905 and 1945 forced uh, segregation it was the court that led the way unfortunately often in the name of emergency exceptions often in the name of public health and the that's why why those of us who saw these cases realized how dangerous they are because they go far past dealing with this pandemic. It's about does separation of powers matter or are we going to return to the era of the eugenics era of the U.S. Supreme Court that said whatever public health authorities say can be imposed on anybody, anywhere, any place, any time, regardless of elections, regardless of the legislative branch, without jury trials, without meaningful evidentiary hearings, without any of the democratic processes that are supposed to restrain and restrict governmental abuses of power.
0: Now, Robert, this is something obviously, um, You're very passionate about it. You've been doing this for a while. I I found that article uh, that was I think it's in in the banner of your Twitter feed, which uh, I think it's Barnes rages against elitism. Uh, Very, very nice picture of you as a younger man. Uh, You're at Yale at the time. What, What were you? Take us back. I'm interested in who you are and and why you're why you're why you care so much here.
1: Sure. So I was a uh, high. I got a scholarship to the Macaulay School, which was a prep school uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, when I was a high schooler. That afforded me the opportunity to be on the radar screen of Ivy League universities. Got a Coca-Cola National Scholarship out of high school and additional scholarships to attend Yale. And when I was at Yale, one of my favorite things to do was to go to the old Yale Library, and that's because back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a big dispute between the workers and the university at Yale. And so what the workers did is they literally carved into the sculptures inside the library things mocking elite Yales. So I thought it was just, it was just a great place to go. It's like and Yale can't change it because it'd be too expensive. So it's like this is fantastic. But hang around the Yale library, pick up the Yale Alumni Monthly Magazine. You learn how power operates when you're at Yale at multiple levels, um, and saw that they were going to strip Yale of uh, a strip. They're going to deny people need blind admissions and uh, and need based financial aid. And what that was was the ivy league had made a commitment in the the 1990s late 1980s that they would not discriminate against a student because they were poor and that if they made it into the admissions process they would make sure the student could afford to attend yale's tuition through a combination of scholarships and fellowships that would be available to them they raised money from yale alumni based on this promise but they were floating a trial balloon that said they wanted to get rid of both that it was too expensive to continue to honor this uh, they wanted more legacy admittees. Those are people who are admitted because their parents or grandparents went to Yale. They wanted more donor admittees, people who got in because they made big donations to Yale. Uh, and so me and some other people started a protest group that said well, this shouldn't happen. And the way Yale handled it was first to act like they were going to address it. And then they basically try to bribe everybody. So they put us on committees and say, now you're going to meet important people. And we'll make sure you get into Yale Law School and everything's going to be great for you. And you will work at Kravitz, Swain & Moore in New York and your life is set. And I remember sitting down talking to the Yale dean and saying, you know, the he the Yale dean actually proposed to me. He's like, don't you want your kids to benefit from these provisions? And I was like, that's the last thing on the world I want is my kid to get in over some deserving, more deserving, poorer student because I happened to get in before. It's like that's exactly what's wrong. So I thought the only way to get the attention of the Yale University students and faculty and other people who are on our side on this issue uh, and some Yale alumni as well was to leave the school in protest. Uh, because nobody ever leaves Yale. Nobody ever looks, you know, you know gives up that opportunity, that golden parachute. Uh, but I did. Uh, and it did, it drew enough protest and public attention that Yale reversed their policy within six months and said that they would stay, you know, they would no longer, they would not discriminate against people just because they're poor. And they would make sure there was equal access to Yale for poor kids. Uh, and they've kept that promise to this day, uh, thanks in part to what we were able to do, even as students. And so what it taught me was, You can be a 19 year old poor kid at one of the most privileged schools in the world. And if you make enough of a fuss, you might be able to change the world. So it's maybe it inspired me to believe, you know, all the underdog cases that I like to take uh, are going to, are going to prevail. That's the only thing all my cases have in common is that they're all underdogs, even if they're, Wealthy, powerful or famous people I'm representing. If I'm representing Bobby Kennedy or representing Wesley Snipes or Ralph Nader, in the cases where I'm representing them, they are still the underdog, regardless of their celebrity or wealth, uh, because they're up against the U.S. government or they're up against you know, the New York Times or they're up against the Associated Press or they're up against Big Pharma. Uh, and so that's the cases that sort of unite my interest. And that's where it comes from. It comes from just a naive belief that you can still change the world because it's the only way the world ever
0: changes. (laughs) So you carried your, your 19 year old idealism forward. And, um, you know, the first place I, I think I came across you, you came on my radar screen was around the Covington kids and, um, to connect that maybe with what's happening with Kyle Rittenhouse, not to dive too deeply into those cases, but to me that there, you have firsthand information an insider sort of view on, on the instructive lessons that come from that in terms of what is wrong with our media. And I would have thought, let me, let me tell you my bias, I would have thought that a million dollar settlement would have cooled their jets a little bit. And I don't know that that's actually happened yet. I'm speaking of CNN in this case, moving straight from, well, tell us about the, the Covington kids and, and how that came about and how you would connect that to CNN's behavior when it comes to Kyle Rittenhouse. It's the
1: power of the press to use their superior access to a broader range of people, a louder mic, you might say, to basically try to suppress dissident information by showing they could smear anyone, anywhere, anyplace. If you could destroy uh, some kids, and that's all they were, kids from Covington, Kentucky, small town, bedroom community of Cincinnati, just across the, the river, if you could destroy them overnight, destroy their entire futures overnight then you were sending a message of what you could do to any American that stuck their head up whose politics they didn't like for any reason. And that's also what ties in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I, I had the privilege of representing Kyle in a similar context because if you could convict Kyle Rittenhouse uh, of, humus, of, of without self-defense in a place like Kenosha, given the facts of that case, then nobody had any self-defense rights anymore. They could a, a politically corrupt prosecutor could strip you of them anytime they wanted as long as they got the right kind of jury to do so. And that's why, you know, self-defense was really at, on trial for Kyle Rittenhouse. And the, the right to not be crushed by big media is what was on trial for all the Covington kids. And the way the Covington kids came about is I was actually on vacation in Bucerias, Mexico, a cute little surfer town, a little north of Puerto Vallarta. And I'd promised to stay off the Twitter, but unfortunately, I didn't keep that promise fully. I just got a little bored watching the ocean waves, tuned in and saw that uh, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times was basically trying to destroy these kids' lives. And I was like, like, this is insane. So I just got agitated and put out a tweet that said, you know, if any of the kids want to sue Maggie or anyone else, I'll represent them for free. And uh, by the time I landed back in the States, of course, the thing had blown up all over the place and had the privilege of representing a lot of folks in that case, uh, a bunch of kids and a bunch of parents. And we were able to get about 90, 95 percent of the people to retract and correct just with the threat of litigation, because normally what happens is defamation lawsuits are expensive. They're difficult to win. Big media has big lawyers right on, on, on toe. They have big insurance policies to cover them, too. So they're almost never paying out of their own pocket. And the what made it different was I, wanted, I always loved the Equalizer show when I was a kid. So I've always said my goal is to equalize the odds in difficult cases. And that was what we did there is we said just by going public and saying we're going to go after everybody, we're going to go after people individually. Uh, we're not just going to go after cnn we're going to go after any reporter who repeats these lies not going to just go after the new york times going to go after maggie haberman by name not just going to go after you know these some of the celebrities going to go after anyone else who tried to profit off of the lies they were trying to tell and, and defaming and destroying these kids and ultimately got 90 95 of them to issue retractions or corrections even elon omar uh got the inspired idea to step back from the the, the brink of her lies that she was telling at the time uh, so so, and we went forward with suit, and just by doing that, you were able to sort of balance things out, so that the truth about the kids came out. Even you know, New York Times, Washington Post had to run corrections and retractions on the story, which they almost never do. Uh, the Associated Press and Reuters, uh, CNN had to put up a front page story that uh, investigation clears kids of the allegations. The but uh, you're right that even though it deterred them from going after those kids any further, it has not deterred them from trying to figure out ways to go after everyone else uh when you're going after bobby kennedy when you've you know you can suspend pre- a united states president from social media now we're suspending, I think yesterday, they suspended a congresswoman from from Twitter, suspended Dr. Robert Malone, one of the most well-regarded scientists in the world on the specifically on the issues of mRNA vaccines. Uh, one of the greatest authorities right before he was about to appear on Joe Rogan, they suspend him from Twitter. So the, there's a, and they lie about him on top of it. They keep saying, well, these people have spread misinformation. It's like, what misinformation? They're quoting government reports. They're, cover, they're, they're doing what you do. They, they cover government's own data. They report peer reviewed studies. I mean, that's it. But somehow we're not supposed to talk about that anymore either. Uh, just the, the the truly sanitized, sanctioned version, state sanctioned version of events. I mean, even Pravda didn't go that far. Uh, you, know, even, you, know, you know, so we'll see how all of it works out. But I think that uh, a lot of these cases correlate because it's about the powerful trying to crush uh, those without power, uh, particularly when they stand up to power
0: feels particularly onerous to me, but possibly just because I've waited closer to the front lines and I'm, I'm parrying with, with the machine, as it were. Has it always been like this or, is, or has something gotten worse over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so?
1: I think it has. I mean, there's some people who are doing some political science studies that are documenting the rise of essentially a new generation of millennials that came through the colleges, that came through the safe space era, came through the sort of the wokeness era. People who grew up when, in the 90s when they were little kids with their parents afraid they were going to be kidnapped and abused. And so uh, they you know, quit letting them play in the street. You know, Everything was a play date, things like that. So they grew up in this safe space culture from a very young age. And now they have real power because they're the lead journalists for a lot of these places, the lead producers at CNN and MSNBC. Uh, they they figured out what was clickbaitish on social media was promoting these sort of woke narratives. Uh, now they're not popular out there in the real world, but they're popular enough on social media to get them attention, to get them validation, and they had more and more influence. And in fact, people have traced just certain terms that suddenly exploded in usage at places like the New York Times that weren't being used just ten years ago. I mean I, I mean, I go back to the Obama 2012 era. I was like, that now would be seen as right-wing conservatism, some of what Obama himself said. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's striking where we've gone and how fast we've gotten there. But that only basically previewed the really frightening aspect, which has been the public policy responses to this pandemic over the last two years, responses we've never issued or instituted in the history of pandemics going back centuries. And so it's the, the core battle of civil rights and civil liberties is right happening right now in our lifetimes, which is kind of fun for lawyers like me, but not fun for a lot of people
0: having to go through it. Well, let's turn now to um, some of the things that people can do. So I, I get these I get these comments all the time. I get requests. I get pleas from people. I feel them as best I can hooking people up with experts who might be able to answer the questions. But the general questions are these um, help. I'm facing termination or excuse exclusion or expulsion from a place of work or institution of learning or the military based on my not wanting to get a vaccine, these vaccines, um, you know, as, as described. So let's start there. If I'm a parent and I've got a child and a school board is saying they have to be vaccinated, what should I do? What are my options? And is there anything I can file or is there any notification that I should be sliding into the record just in case?
1: Absolutely. There's three really different approaches that everyone should take. First is self-education, self-education and self-empowerment. So learn all you can about the medical issues, scientific issues and legal issues. Uh, You know, the and you don't have to spend tons of time. You can go to people like Dr. Robert Malone. You can go to places like the Unity Project that has a lot of standardized, accessible material. So you can grasp the information quickly uh, so that you know for yourself what the situation is, because that's the first step. So many of these people are running into judges that believe a bunch of nonsense. That I'll run into a judge that thinks that it's very rare, for example, for there to be a breakthrough infection with any of these variants concerning the vaccine, when according to the FDA's own data, that's it's not very rare anymore. Um, and similar things like that. So know the data, know the information, know the sourcing for it. You know, Robert Kennedy's book on Anthony Fauci is a great, excellent source. Malone, Dr. Robert Malone's always a great, excellent source. Uh, Alex Berenson has been a very good source on this. His book Pandini is good on this. His Substack is very good. Uh, So there's a lot of people, Stephen Kirst, there's other people providing a lot of uh, data and information and and analysis of it, your channel uh, uh, as well, of course. So people should go to those places, learn as much information as they can, because the first step of self-empowerment is self-education. The second is. Uh, One of the things that people are really figuring out is going to board meetings like these school board meetings, uh, making FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, or their equivalent under state law, usually it's some form of sunshine law or open records law. You're entitled to a lot of that information. The good work that's being done by Del Bigtree and Aaron Seary going after the FDA and CDC just... To document what happened has been very revealing. Uh, You know, emails about Anthony Fauci trying to misshape the agenda and information he knew about where maybe this virus really came from initially and his efforts to cover it up. That came out through FOIA data, uh, FOIA request. So know what your uh, your rights to information about what your governmental agency is up to. Uh, And then third, know how you can push back, whether that's going to a meeting and being able to get on the be able to present your arguments to the board. Many of those meetings have gone viral because they're often they're videotaped. They go out there and they show the school board that the MSNBC version of reality is not the actual only version of reality that exists. And that by itself is important. But also often you can actually persuade people to say, hold on a second. Then uh, uh, the way you can exercise your legal rights vary. So it depends on the setting or the circumstance. But often you have a right of religious accommodation to be exempt from the vaccine, uh, any vaccine mandate, a right of medical accommodation. I believe the ADA laws apply. We designed the Americans with Disabilities Act so that we would never repeat what happened during the HIV crisis where people panicked. And, you know, they were firing grandmas who were taking care of their ill sons, grandsons because they thought that person could spread HIV. A certain Anthony Fauci might've said some statements that were a little not so proven true over time about how you could get HIV. And so he wrote the laws, the ADA laws say that if somebody even, this includes public accommodations, this includes state and local governments, this includes private employers. It says, if you think someone is somehow physically or medically handicapped, And that's what a lot of them are saying when they say you're not vaccinated. They think the person is physically or medically handicapped. You can't discriminate against them unless you go through an individualized process, make reasonable accommodations, and uh, you can only deny them employment benefits if you can prove business necessity. And when you have the easy alternatives of testing, when there's the data out there that the vaccine isn't the most effective means uh, in all instances to prevent transmission, when you have that information out there, many of these people are uh, employers, public accommodations elsewhere, are not able to meet the legal standard to justify any discrimination against you. So it's knowing your rights is the first stage to being able to assert your rights. And there's many stages at which you can assert those rights, whether it's a school board or private employer or governmental mandate. And then there's lawyers uh, like me and there's good projects like the Unity Project that are gathering information, gathering resources so that you can be effective Uh, fighting back and protecting your civil liberties in this circumstance
0: now one of the things that blew my mind when I heard you speak out in Phoenix which I alluded to is is this idea of religious accommodation uh very naive of me I thought that must have meant somebody's very ultra conservative orthodox something something it means you know they really are set in the religious beliefs uh actually that's not what this can take us through that I think you called it title seven what what is what is the religious accommodation that are available and, and why do they exist
1: So the religious accommodation is about protecting your First Amendment right of religious expression from state intrusion and also protecting against religious discrimination, either in places of public accommodation or public employment or private employment. And the goal is that your religious beliefs can't be used against you. And most people assume the word religious belief means organized religion. The New York governor made that mistake and miscue. In fact, because we don't want to discriminate on your beliefs, atheists can assert a religious exception. I say that really what, if you understood the law, the best way to translate it to the ordinary person is a religious accommodation is an accommodation of personal conscience. It's is do you be based on a belief of personal conscience, not want to take this particular drug? And that's what I find. I mean, like, for example, to me, informed consent is part of a person's I know many people for whom the fact that this uh, vaccine is being mandated against informed consent violates their conscience. They say, I don't want what happened in Nuremberg to ever happen again. We established good moral legal principles, and, and I see this moral principle being violated, a moral principle that we said was so important, we executed people for violating it after the fact. Because the Nuremberg Code didn't exist at the time in which they violated it. But we said it was so important morally, conscientiously, that we could uh, hang people who violated it. That can be an example of a religious accommodation because it's a deeply, sincerely held moral belief about life and death itself. And that's where people uh, often think you don't have to have a permission from your pastor. You don't even have to be in a church. You don't even have to be of uh, a deist You can be an atheist, you can be an agnostic, you can be of any kind of belief structure. Uh, Vegetarians have asserted this in certain contexts, recognized in the UK, by the way, on this precise question, uh, and recognized in some other jurisdictions. So it can be any deeply held moral code uh, that, you know, it can't be something like, well, like somebody who says, well, I need to keep my tattoo because to me it's real important. That's not what they mean by religious accommodation, unless that tattoo was, say, part of your tribe's tradition that identified who you are and your connections to your ancestors. Then it would be part of such a tradition. So that's an illustration, an illustrative example. But it's under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, as no private employer or place of public accommodation can discriminate against you based on your beliefs. uh, And unless they can prove business necessity for doing so. And the reality is, with the ease of testing as an alternative, They can never prove. And with the problems of vaccines preventing transmissibility, they can never prove business necessity in court. And whenever any of these pandemic issues has gone to an actual evidentiary hearing the the uh, the people demanding some public health intervention have lost because the evidence simply doesn't support them, whether it's mask mandates or vaccine mandates.
0: All right. It's a matter of conscience. I think I understand, the, the I, I love the idea that you don't have to be a deist at all this. So for me, it might be a matter of conscience for me to say, um, as a parent, I find it unconscionable that you would ask a child with a zero risk to take some higher risk so that somebody else has an unprovably improved risk profile. That to me is a matter, of, that's conscious, I can't, I can't do that. So would that apply?
1: Absolutely. It's anything like that, because it's just things that go right to your core. Yeah. That, you know the And in almost everybody I know, who objects to the vaccine mandates, it's because it goes right to their core of something they they hold deeply true. And that's what religious accommodations are meant to protect. And not only that, employers are limited in how they can ask questions about it, because pretty soon they start discriminating against you because they don't like your particular religious belief. Mm. And that itself is retaliation and discrimination under the law and punishable under the law. And so the, the that the religious accommodation is the most robust protection in the law from these vaccine mandates at a wide in a in a wide range of contexts it can even apply in certain cases to school vaccine mandates that are coming down the pipeline so the uh, it's very important that people understand what their rights are and they can read Biden administration's own EEOC manual on religious discrimination that shows how broad and expansive this right is
0: now, let's imagine, um, I'm, I'm wondering what the remedy is or what the penalties are in this case. So let's imagine I'm a CEO. I violate Title VII. I, I violate the religious thing exemption. It's, it's found in a court of law that I violated that. Um, can I hide behind my company? Will my, will my insurance cover this? Who, who's liable?
1: There's two different issues that potentially you're, the, the company is always on the hook. Whether the individual can also be on the hook varies. Some, like I'm suing Tyson Foods because their vaccine mandate put people on unpaid leave, even if you had a religious accommodation or medical accommodation for it. So they were basically firing people that had worked there for over 20 years, loyal employees. And we're bringing suit in Tennessee. We're going to be bringing suit in a bunch of jurisdictions across the country in the coming weeks. And Tyson Foods' defense was that they were a federal actor. They didn't want to be sued in state court, so they removed the case, said, we're we're really doing this on the behalf of the federal government. What they did not realize... Is by doing so, they not only made their corporation liable as a federal government agency would be, which because there's the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, which is much stronger even than Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, because it says you have to have compelling governmental interest and narrowly tailored means and all these restrictions before you can discriminate against religious accommodations. Uh, also, other, But it also applies to the First Amendment, other uh, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, all of which are implicated by these vaccine mandates because it's invasion of your privacy, your right to bodily integrity, all of which has been previously established by U.S. Supreme Court law going back over a century. And so in this context, if you admit you're a federal actor, not only are you now subject to a whole bunch of different liabilities under the law, but you're also now individually liable. So we're gonna be looking at suing individual corporate executives because what they don't understand is that under the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, for example, any individual can be held accountable and has to pay damages and has to pay attorney's fees and has to pay costs. And I don't think they realize that. And if you look at in the case of the Tyson case, You're talking about thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of dollars per person. So, you know, potentially, so you're talking about millions and millions and millions that they could be personally liable for uh, that insurance might not even be obligated to cover. Uh, So, you know, those stock, stock options might get, uh, might have to be sold pretty quick. So uh, the, I think some of these CEOs have relied on corporate counsel that's conflicted because also what's happened here is a lot of the people, employers I advised, uh, took the good advice of not imposing any vaccine mandate. They saw this was just from a legal risk perspective. It was like, whatever you think about the vaccine, whatever you think about the pandemic, uh, we're not taking the legal risk of being on the hook for this. Because the other risk employers take is because they're forcing this. The EOC admitted it last year. Now they've stepped back from admitting it publicly. But what when an employer forces it, it may be a grounds for the person to sue if they suffer any injury because of what they were forced to do because it became a condition of their employment. So like right now, you, you can't sue Big Pharma or the drug companies or anyone else related to the vaccines. It's one of the legal problems that I have with it. However, you may be able to sue your employer if they required you to get it. And that, yeah. I mean, I mean that, that damage can be disability damages, death damages. Who knows how much that can be, uh, given what's leaked out from different places about this. We still don't know, as the FDA itself says, the full safety r- risk profile of these vaccines. If the worst case scenario happens, You could have a bunch of corporations and potentially because of their federal actor role, individually responsible. You might have a human resources person not realize they've subjected themselves to bankruptcy risk by forcing this vaccine on people by pretending that they're doing so in the name of the federal government, creating more risk for them legally than they would have otherwise. So that's where the there is potential risk for everybody. And I think a lot of people are making bad decisions because you have corporate law firms that have stock or ties to big pharma. And they frankly should not be advising. What they're doing is they're telling one group of clients, you're going to have to force this on people to enrich another group of clients. They really had a conflict of interest and should have given no advice on this. But I, I think a bunch of lawyers are going to face legal malpractice suits down the road because they're going to have some employers say, hold on a second, you told me I had to do this. And it turned out you had a conflict of interest. You didn't fully disclose to me because this is making billions of profits for Pfizer and others. And Pfizer is the most criminally sanctioned drug company in the history of the world. Uh, So they might, you know, it'd be like, you know, having a convicted drug dealer tell you, don't worry, I'm going to give you something safe now. Um, And I think a lot of people don't understand how much risk they've created for themselves, because they've been listening to MSNBC too much.
0: Now, I hope you get to advise more of these corporations, um, because certainly I would be exceedingly concerned if I was a CEO and I was in a position of saying I'm going to have to enforce this because when and maybe I'm just not close enough to it. But the way I read it, Robert, the government is sort of applying pressure, but they haven't really provided clarity. It's I I don't feel like there's the protection. They're just saying you have to mandate this. But last I checked, a mandate is not a law and you're only protected under the law. So when somebody is mandated to do something and they enforce that mandate in the condition of, of their job, whether I don't care if they're on a school board, they're a university administrator, they're in a company, what, what protection do they actually have? It I, feels to me, I, I, don't, I don't understand. What does enforcing a mandate do for you as an individual or a corporation?
1: I think what they don't understand is and underappreciate and have often been given bad legal advice on is they seem to believe that they will be as immune as the drug companies are and that's not what the law says the law doesn't give uh private employers immunity for following and they can read through the mandates the mandates don't do it either these supposed mandates which again are not laws they're just the biden administration declaring something and they often have loopholes buried in them because they're they're built within every single one of these mandates says that nobody should force the mandate on uh, a vaccine on someone who has a religious or medical accommodation. It says no one should require it if it would violate the ADA. So the the, the government's always going to have their loopholes and private employers don't realize that there's the MSNBC interpretation of the mandate. And then there's what all the loopholes and footnotes and exceptions actually say. And And they protect the federal government at the expense of the private employer and the private citizen. That's one of the big problems with all this. It's like the private individual who takes the vaccine has to bear almost all the risk of it legally and medically uh, with limited exceptions. But what they've also done is put private employers and places of public accommodation, restaurants, the rest are all going to be subject to suit on this because they didn't read the fine print. The fine print said, yeah, you could do a a vaccine, however, and mandate it and we're recommending it or we're ordering it, but we're only ordering it to the extent it complies with other law. And that that was, you know, how they they buried mm-hmm. in. It was like having a contract that's really unenforceable if you read the second sentence after the first one. And they don't they don't appreciate that. And they're going to be subject to massive litigation for years to come. Anybody who forces this on people unwittingly and on, without following informed consent principles.
0: Well, let, let's take this now to the idea of early treatment or treatment in general, which is a, a big source subject. You know, my Twitter handle is Chris Early Treatment Martinson. Right. I've been I've been doing what I can to sort of push this forward and. I work with the FLCC doctors, and I'm a huge believer in early treatment, particularly where we have things that are completely safe, so the downside is zero, or close to zero as you can get in the world of drugs, and the upside is potentially not dying. So it's very asymmetrical, and yet it's been fought and fought and refought and all of that, and then I'm looking at, like, the cases of Paul Merrick against Centara. And my interpretation of that, which I'd love to get your angle on, is that it looks to me like what these hospital administrators are doing are saying there's a set of procedures that we only want our doctors to perform because those are contained under something called the PREP Act, if you could explain to people what that is, because they're excluded from all liability as long as they're following official rules. And, of course, the official rules don't include early treatments that actually help people and save people. So I feel like the incentive system, if I'm reading it right, is for hospitals to apply a certain set of treatments, not because they're the best or provably the best for the patient, but because they offer the most money and the least amount of liability exposure for the hospitals. Is that accurate possibly?
1: Yeah, that's precisely accurate. And you know, I was telling people early on, if I was a doctor or if I was a lawyer advising a doctor, that their best advice is to, for themselves personally, professionally and financially, is to say wonderful things about the vaccine and make sure people get as many people as possible get it and not to encourage them to for to have alternative treatments to the vaccine not to encourage them not to get the vaccine because if they turned out that their advice is wrong about the vaccine or early treatments they can't be sued under those grounds if on the other hand they tell a person not to take the vaccine or they encourage early treatments in lieu thereof and something goes sideways then they're fully subject to suit so there's been this completely distorted disincentive system to actually do competent ethical medicine based on individualized risk. Because that's the other thing that's happening. The FDA and CDC are approving drugs without giving an individualized stratified risk profile. I mean, is the same risk for a four-year-old the same as an 83-year-old with four comorbid diseases? Uh, We know that it's not, and yet they're not being told that. And the same is true of, of hospitals and doctors. And that's where a lot of the ivermectin disputes have happened. And what's interesting is, They've, people have been tracking, uh, the, uh, still to this day, the media will highlight when it fails, but to this day, more people have won going to court challenging a hospital's refusal to give ivermectin than have lost. Of note, almost everybody who's won, the person who got the ivermectin treatment survived, bounced back, and was out of the hospital soon thereafter. By contrast, the people who didn't win disproportionately died. So, maybe that's a coincidence. I'm sure the FDA would tell me it's a big coincidence under the circumstances. Uh, but it, it raises, uh, but it's important evidence for people to raise before a judge. If you bring before a judge and you say, hey, judge, there's 10 colleagues of yours that have already ruled on this issue. The seven that said, yes, make sure this person can get ivermectin and live. The three that said, no, I'm going to defer to the hospital. Two of the three died. Judges are going to pay attention to that because they don't want to be on the hook for somebody's death. And you're going to start winning more and more and more. And hospitals are going to have to start forcing uh, uh, different accounting to be taking place. Because what people don't know is that, unfortunately, uh, hospitals establish their policies for, uh, according to their financial risk and financial reward. And right now, all of the entire system says only do what the CDC or Anthony Fauci's latest advice is, which, of course, varies from week to week. But whatever that is, yeah. that's what you have to follow. Uh, not your own medical understanding. And especially Fauci doesn't know your patient. So, I mean, that's the biggest problem I have with that. It's not all of medicine should be individualized. And what we've done is we've stripped it. All these vaccine mandates, many of the courts are pointing out, this is not individualized. This is a one-size-fits-all sledgehammer that makes no sense. Something like medicine, by definition, should be individualized based on the individual. One person could be six years old and be more at risk from COVID than an 80-year-old under unique circumstances. It's not going to be generally true, but but that doctor should be the one to say this was what might work, this is what might not work, not be hamstrung and handcuffed by rules designed to be disincentives through a one size fits all sledgehammer system that is denying people competent professional medical care.
0: All right, so we have we have college students returning right now. I know personally some who are in this exact situation which is oh, you can you're only welcome back if you've had your booster. So they've gone down to this booster line. Is there anything this person could let, let's say they say, I oh, got screw it. I got to get the booster. But is there some way is there some piece of paper they can handle like their hospital administrator saying, I'm taking this under duress as a matter of coercion. And I am hereby by taking it. I do not. I don't know what the legal language is, but I don't hereby abrogate or give up my title seven rights. And I'm putting you on notice. Is there anything they could just even scratch out and hand in that would be helpful potentially if something does go wrong?
1: Absolutely. The way I see it is there's a threefold approach. I advise people, whether it's an employer, educational institution, anyone else, first ask for the policy. Often they don't have a policy, by the way, because oh. they're trying to hide liability and they want to later say, well, we didn't really force you to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, get a copy of the actual policy. See what the fine print says. Secondly, uh, in the educational context, you have a right of religious accommodation, a right of medical accommodation. There have already been two lawsuits brought against uh, educational institutions, one in Louisiana, one in uh, Michigan. Well, the Michigan case went up to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, in both cases, the federal court said that you cannot force a student who has a religious objection to the vaccine to be to take the vaccine. Um, And so the so you've already you got good favorable precedent on your side on that precise issue. And then third is what you note if for whatever reason that doesn't work for you or isn't available to you then absolutely document on the record that you are only taking this vaccine because you are being compelled and coerced to do so. That you would not take it as part of your free will, that you still don't have full, accurate, adequate information to make an informed choice, and that this is against your informed consent, not with your informed consent. So it's clear on the record what took place.
0: Now, um, speaking of which... uh... You know, I know we didn't exactly get to a definition of the PrEP Act. Maybe we could get there in case it's relevant. But I'm wondering about the liability in this case, because I know people who've gone to say to their OBGYN, they're women of childbearing age, or they're thinking about becoming pregnant, or they are pregnant, and said, should I get this vaccine? And the doctor said, yes, they've been proven safe and effective. So I went to the provider labeling that existed at the time, which is still true to this day, the day of this recording, which is um, early 2022. And the section under there simply reads, there's not enough information to, to gauge safety for pregnant women. That's actually what's in the provider label, which is ostensibly the most comprehensive label that we have with the most information. They say explicitly, there's not enough information. So for a, an OBGYN who goes out of their way to say, yes, this is safe, if it later turns out not to be safe, and it said so in the label, but they communicated otherwise, are they still protected by the PREP Act?
1: Yes. I mean, the PREP Act is so bad that if you go to the, your local CVS to get your vaccine shot and you trip and fall because they decided not to clean up you know, aisle number four, you can't sue them on their slip and fall purposes because it's connected to the administration of a vaccine. Uh, I mean, people have even tried to argue that car accidents uh, that are concerned a vaccine somehow immunize the person who was negligent driving the car. That's how bad it's been. And the courts have gone out of their way. And I've always told people I'll never trust a drug that has immunity from suit in case somebody, the drug maker is lying to me about it. I just Mm -hmm. don't trust that kind of drug. A drug may turn out to be wonderful, may turn out to be great, but if it is wonderful and great, you don't need immunity from suit. It's like a criminal, it's like someone who's being, uh, wants to say, hey, I want a a plea agreement that gives me complete immunity in advance before I confess my crimes. Like the last uh, episode of the series SHIELD. Uh, You know, you shouldn't trust that person hasn't doesn't have anything to hide. The chances are there's information of a bunch of crimes they want to confess without accountability now. And that's kind of what's happening here. We have no legal accountability because of the scope and scale of the prep act. It's one of the reasons for the game playing that's occurring in terms of we have an FDA approved vaccine, but it's not the one that's available and being administered to people. Um, and the, uh, the contention of many people, uh, including uh, Jordan Schachtel at the dossier on Substack and others, uh, and it was our contention from the, great, uh, from the get-go with Bobby Kennedy and Merrill Ness and others at Children's Health Defense, is that if you dug into it, the reason they're doing it is that uh, they, they have complete PrEP Act immunity as long as what's being administered is under the emergency use authorization label. They also will, will have immunity once it's on the kids list. But it's not clear how much immunity they have if they're neither emergency use authorized nor children authorized vaccines. And so that gave them a powerful incentive to say, yes, we're going to license this drug, but that's not the one we're going to administer. And the FDA just said they're legally distinct, medically interchangeable, but legally distinct. And what they mean by that is they can't be sued in case they turned out to be completely negligent in how they produced it, or if it doesn't actually produce the outcomes that they promised. People can go back and watch what Rachel Maddow or our own president said about how this vaccine would completely stop even the possibility of transmission. Um, that's a statement that in traditionally, if somebody made that statement, it turned out false, or someone like an OBGYN made false statements to a pregnant woman, it turned out false. Normally, you can get sued. But if it has any ten, even tangential tie to a vaccine under the existing laws under the PrEP Act, as long as they're emergency use authorized and it's not before
0: and they're on the, or they're on the kids list, there's nothing you can do, sadly. And that PrEP, that's pandemic response, emergency. Something. <laughs> What's
1: the, I forget what the last word is, but I mean, they passed it about 10 years ago and it was supposed to be uh, limited in its application. Uh, that, but of course, we've seen what happened with it. Uh, yeah. People misapplied it across the board, that and I, now people face individual risk. I did see
0: somewhere in there it said, "Unless the only place where you have a liability gets taken away is if you knowingly, yeah. if you knowingly did something." So, so now let's let's talk very quickly, if we could. Um, a lot of people think it smells a tiny bit that we, the people, will not see some of the Pfizer safety data in the FDA filing until maybe as late as 2096. And that's not just Pfizer wanting that, the FDA is slow rolling that whole thing. How suspicious should we be of, of that particular situation? It's another instance where if we could have confidence, I
1: mean, it's like censorship. When I see censorship, I become skeptical of the censor. Because if it's really misinformation, then you answer that in the court of public opinion, and you don't have to be scared of misinformation because you answer it with accurate information. It's usually accurate information you want to censor because you don't like people knowing the truth when it conflicts with your institutional interest or public narrative. And I think here in this context, we have definite examples of that by the refusal of the FDA to timely produce basic information response to elementary FOIA requests. Um, In asking for these 75 year delays. Uh, I represent a a whistleblower uh, whose information was reviewed by the British Medical Journal that determined that there was a lot of things that went wrong in those Pfizer clinical trials. You have to wonder whether that's part of the reason they're wanting to sit on it. it. Do a lot of those records confirm her allegations and accusations as to what she witnessed and saw, which was basically a complete joke of a clinical trial that couldn't meet any medically scientific standard. And if that was the case there, how broad and widespread was it? Is that what they're hiding? They're clearly hiding something. Uh, And they don't need 75 years to, if they need 75 years to disclose the information, then they should have taken 75 years before they approved the vaccine. So the, uh, that's my concern, is that there, there should be correspondence between length of time. Purportedly, they reviewed this information and know it's uh, why it backs their position of its safety and efficacy. But clearly, they're worried that if ordinary people see it, they might come to a different conclusion. Indeed, Dr. Robert Malone was suspended from Twitter from just reading from the Pfizer clinical study. That's all he did. He said, here's what it says, by the way. Here's here's the chart. And they're like, you're out of here. The uh, It's like, OK. I mean, all Bob, Bobby Kennedy got kicked off of Instagram because he was just quoting the vaccine adverse event reporting system that was put in place for precisely this reason of m- making sure there was independently accessible information about what the risks were from the vaccine. Of course, we don't medically know with certainty whether those risks being being reported are uh, ca- are caused by the vaccine, but we do know from prior studies that those reports tend to underestimate the amount of negative consequences from a drug, not overestimate it. Um, and we're seeing collateral evidence of that from what the insurance company executive sort of blurted out about excess deaths in a particular state. So uh, within a particular age group, that might be the most at risk for this particular controversial drug. And so I think uh, I mean, we have a drug that had, to, that had to redefine the word vaccine in order to fit it, to, to relabel it a vaccine I mean, for the first time in a century. So uh, the, the PrEP Act is clearly overly broad. Uh, and overly expansive. And this has highlighted the need to reform those laws, just like it's highlighted the need for many great laws that have passed in the past year about not allowing employers to mandate vaccines, not allowing them to force things on kids without the parents informed consent, so on and so forth. Uh, but it's it's highlighted the the issues present that have always been there. They're just coming to a, a clear uh, a confrontation for people to witness and understand. And luckily, a lot of good people are stepping into the uh,
0: arena and making a difference. I agree. And I feel the winds shifting even as we're recording this. So uh, an important point you made I want to hear again is is so there's right and wrong. There's legal. There's illegal. There's what the courts come up with. But the court of public opinion matters. Judges are people. You said uh, I'm in it to win it. So what can we the people out here do to help the court of public opinion? And what do you mean by that? What is the court of public opinion? Really? So
1: basically, what uh, happens is every judge pays attention to what's happening with the media, what's happening with uh, various you know people, their neighbors, their friends, their, and so when they get constant, continuous information that questions some institutional narrative, they often will pay more attention than they otherwise would. When they see the public really enraged and upset, so all these public protests are good. All the activity on social media is good that contests these institutional narratives is good. All the sharing of links and information with as many people as possible is effective and important and good, and no one should ever underestimate it. Because I like to remind people that when in Jacobson, they said you could be fined a small amount if you didn't take a vaccine in response to an actual dangerous epidemic, much more dangerous than this, smallpox. uh, They established the scary precedent because that case itself was then used to justify forced sterilizations of Connie Buck. And then those two cases were used to justify forced detention camps based on whether your grandfather was born in a particular country. People who lost everything, business rights, property rights, religious rights, political expression rights, family associations. I mean, it was just horrendous. And how, But how that happened also was there was nobody protesting. There was nobody in the streets fighting for Connie Buck. There was nobody, in, even in the courts, her lawyer wasn't really her lawyer. Her lawyer was working for the other side. And so the that's where it matters. The court of public opinion impacts every decision maker because in the end, we're not really governed by law or governed by men. And the law is only as good as those men are uh, and men and women. And if we are going to step into that breach and meet the, t- uh, the challenge, it's going to depend on ordinary people making sure their voices are heard by those with the power to make a decision, whether that's the power of the gavel, the power of the gun, or the power of the pen, or the power of the purse. And they all ultimately listen to ordinary, everyday people. And already we've made bigger differences in fighting back against these mandates than any fight back against mandates in history. And for people who don't know, I mean, you know, and a few people know, and people who watch your program may know, but, I mean, th- th- this goes back centuries. There's a, you know, debates about this going back to the mid-1700s in the United Kingdom when the public health authorities had a bad idea and some bad strategies and it backfired, and the only reason it changed for a period of time was a bunch of ordinary people fought back. The same is true here. The only way this craziness stops is ordinary people fighting back in every legal means they have available to them.
0: So... January 23rd. I'm just going to put out 2022. There's going to be a a defeat the mandates march in Washington, D.C. I want to put a plug in for that because I think it is important that we stand up. That court of public opinion is really important. It's important for two reasons. One, so the judges can find out and so other Americans can just see that we're not alone or they're not alone or or that this is a a real issue. But it, it goes way beyond. To me, this isn't a fight any longer about public health. Right. If there was a compelling public health argument, it just got shredded with Omicron in the last couple of weeks. Right. Because we now know, according to Dutch data, UK data, Ontario data, that people who are double vaccinated are actually more likely to catch and transmit the virus than people who are unvaccinated. So we no longer have the public health mandate is now down to what really, I think, can only be said as we don't want to overwhelm the hospitals. But Omicron is also Very much less lethal and and morbid creating than the other earlier variants. So the whole narrative's just fallen apart, and so I think this is a critical moment in time for people to stand up and really push because because things are wobbling again a little bit here, and I'd like to see it wobble in the right direction. Absolutely, there's been a
1: breach in the dam, and now's the time to put as much pressure as possible for the dam to break, Uh, because they thought this would never happen. So few people fought back even as they kept expanding the vaccine schedule for kids more and more and more. And there were a few people, more and more people were like, why do we need 65 or 82 or whatever the latest number? My newborn needs for- a
0: hep B vaccine within six hours. I'm, I'm, I, I'm a bad parent if I need that vaccine. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, more people have woken up than ever before and are fighting
1: back. And because this was really about governments establishing a precedent that they own your body. Because if you don't control what goes into your own body, then you don't own your own body. And if you don't own your own body, what do you own? I and mean, do you own anything at that point? I mean, it's the great reset uh, put into real action. Uh, you're not not—you're going to own nothing, not even your own body, mm-hmm. and you'll be happy for it, according to dear Klaus. Mm-hmm. So, the, uh, so I think that's the ordinary people fighting back all around the globe. It has, has been the one defining thing that has really limited and constricted their ability to pull this off. I mean, a lot of Republican politicians were asleep at the wheel six months ago. Uh, there weren't a lot of proposals to curb this. They were, what, what were they doing? They were waiting to see how the uh, tea leaves would blow. And once they saw, oh, hold on a second, this is not popular. These ideas are not, you know, coercing and forcing this on kids, uh, forcing this on workers, forcing this on anybody, anywhere, any place, any time, for any reason, is not acceptable. But as you know, as people have witnessed, the limitations of this uh, experimental drug uh, that we've, in my view, mislabeled a vaccine by the FDA, who had to change the definition of it to label it as such, uh, is also improving. It, and But that's only because people are listening to independent voices and sharing the information for those independent voices. Imagine if just the we were in an ABC, NBC, CBS world of 1950, uh, most people would still probably be paranoid, uh, but you know, triple masked, uh, hiding in their closets, uh, waiting for Fauci to give him permission to go outside and even walk the dog. And so, uh, it's because of ordinary people fighting back that we live in a very different world. And it's only because they will continue to fight back
0: that we can continue to have that different world. I completely agree. It, it is the two-edged sword of the social media. Yes. They're able to control and contain and shadow ban and censor and do all of those things. And yet we still are able to find each other. And by the way, you know, as I was first unearthing, um, my first pandemic alert was January 23rd, 2020, because I was just reading the tea leaves, saw it. You know, as soon as Wuhan shut down, I was like, OK, this is serious. I'm going to have to talk about this. But within a month, I'd managed to find people like Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick. And, and at the edges, people were figuring this out like that. So that whole distributed model of intelligent humans sort of rallying around and and using their intelligence to figure something out that was really fast breaking showed that our institutions are not only slow because they are, but they're corrupt. And that all really got exposed. And I think that's that's good. I I think that needed to happen. Um, I just got my my twenty one point eight percent yearly increase in, in my health insurance bill for my family for, you know, and I'm it's just it's a broken system. So I'm actually glad that now it's broken enough that people can look at it and go, yeah, you know what? Not only can we do better, but we really got to. We need. It's time. It's time oh, to absolutely. fix this.
1: I mean, it's like the uh, taverns of uh, colonial America that helped feed the American Revolution, that people were able to spread an independent story, an independent narrative outside of the controls of the confined corridors of power. And that helped change and revolutionize the world. For a freedom movement. Freedom just has a way that you can put up all the gates you want. Freedom is going to find a way to get to people. And freedom has continued to do so. It will continue to do so because ordinary people continue to will be willing and ready to uh, carry
0: Paul Revere's message of liberty
1: yeah. uh, further and
0: farther every day. Well, I love it. I love how you connected this to the Great Reset, because to me, all this COVID stuff is just you can I feel it's part of a larger agenda. It's very easy for me to connect that. Give me enough time and I can I can show you that. Well, listen, they're not even shy about it, Robert. It's up on their website. I'm this kind of guy. If you say you're going to do something and then it happens, I'm going to think you might have done it, right? So they've been very clear about what they're up to. And of course, you, you mentioned and hinted at the climate emergency that might follow. If we're not careful, one emergency will just lead to the next, will lead to the next, will lead to the next. But they're all headed in the same direction, which is less for me, more for them. That's how I'm interpreting all of this, so. Thank you for fighting. Absolutely. Fight.
1: I mean, that's why it's, it's the seminal, it's probably the biggest uh, debate and biggest decisions are going to be made governing the future of individual freedom since World War II. I mean, it's really of that equivalent level. That we're facing and confronting. And it's even scarier because almost all the governments are in cahoots this time against us. Uh, And that's but it's even more empowering to see so many people fight back from all across the political spectrum, all across the social spectrum, all across backgrounds, all across the globe. Uh, people have fought back, and that's what gives me faith in the future of humanity, is ordinary everyday people's willingness and readiness to fight back against this tyrannical attempt to usurp our liberties that were constitutionally
0: given to us centuries ago. And I agree so much, and if we look at the pattern of this, we're really talking about Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United States, we're talking about UK, Europe, right? Interestingly, in my newspaper, I never read about how bad Africa is doing because they're not struggling with this at all. India, not struggling right? Vietnam, not really struggling, right? So when you look at this, it's really the only countries that are wrapped around the axle of COVID at this point in time and COVID policies and the inability to have a logical, coherent set of public health policies. It tells me it has nothing to do with public health. First off, we've established that. So we've established it has to be about something. It can't just be about money, although that's a powerful motivator. But there are people who are seeking to reset the terms and conditions under which we pretty well did pretty well for the last few hundred years. I think there ought to be a robust discussion about that, and we shouldn't just shrug and go, oh, well, I guess that's how it is, right, without really thinking about it, because the consequences, as I see them, could be pretty bad. Oh, no doubt. I mean, you look at just what Bill Gates has been doing for a dozen years, and he's been
1: giving the roadmap of what how he thinks the future should look, and he's been working with people like Bloomberg and George Soros and Oprah and a whole range, David Rockefeller, and a range of other people to help create that world. And it's a world in which we don't get to uh, to vote. You know, I mean, Bill Gates believes in it. Fine. Run for president. Win. Uh, he knows that ain't never going to happen. I mean, you know, he likes to power around with people like Jeffrey Epstein. That's not real popular these days in the ordinary public. So I think that uh, and Bill Gates, a guy you look under the hood, you're usually you don't like what you see the more you look. But there's a guy who's talked about, you know, the future being a, you know, a physical chip in your body that's all your medical records, your personal identifying information, your me- your financial information, that can be turned off remotely at any time if you, you know, somehow act badly. Uh, that's the ultimate method of control. It's people that for whom money is just a mechanism of control. And they're not doing it for out of financial greed. They're doing it out of greed for power, out of covetous, covetousness for power itself. And that's why they pose the risk they face because someone like Bill Gates has spent the better part of a decade doing everything from, you know, helping buy off public health authorities, literally around the globe, the number two contributor to the world health organization. Uh, But is it really a coincidence that the scary models about these viruses came out of two institutions, Imperial college in London, and another one out of Seattle that have deep ties to Bill Gates foundation funds. Maybe not. Uh, Is it a coincidence that his foundation has managed to make money while well, giving it away over the last decade, maybe not. And so it's, a, I want a world that's directed by what our constitutional ancestors give, gifted in birth to us and gave to us, uh, not the world that Bill Gates wants for us. And that's what the future is all about.
0: Now, now I'm gonna. This part is definitely not going out in public. I'll tell you this. So I researched this pretty far down, um, and what I was really concerned with all the way back in june of 2020 i was saying hey journalists you ought to be asking about the prra polybasic furin insert cleavage site which gave all the gain of function to this otherwise innocuous virus this little strip of 12 amino acids um sorry four amino acids 12 nucleotides this thing was this is this is really critical and then i find out just a couple of months ago that there's only two places in nature that that exact sequence is found one it's a little-known um, bacterium, and the second is in 18 Moderna patents. This is the only place we find that clip of, of instructional material. And by the way, those patents uh, were first filed in 2013.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean what's amazing about M- Moderna in general... It is here. You have a company that's never had a successful drug in history. And now mm-hmm. and now they're now they have uh, a novel vaccine for a novel virus a, a f- that comes from a family of viruses. That's never had it. That's we've never had a successful vaccine for in history. I mean, it's, I mean, the information that the media has kept people blinded about has been striking. But I think, yeah, I think you make it. You, you, oh Well, I mean. Is not like Gates was hiding it. I mean, he does you know event two hundred one in October two thousand and nineteen to say hey, maybe a coronavirus pandemic yeah, is coming. Yeah, we've and never how had one we... like
0: that, but maybe maybe this time we have one.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, he's getting the military on board. And what it really was was a test run. How will people respond? How will people react at positions of power? Here's where our weak links are. Here's how we need to fix those. And they did a you know mighty good job of it. I mean, ah. to their credit. I mean, I, it's the old saying, you know. Uh, why do we have a criminal justice system that seems to create a permanent criminal class? Well, no crime, no police. How do you make people feel good about the state spending a lot of money on uh, you know, having police go through your neighborhood every day? Well, they're there to keep those bad criminals away. And you know, if you want to keep the war machine going, you need to find an enemy. And if you can't find an enemy, create one. Uh, but what they figured out is that the greatest way to restrain liberty overnight – uh, is to say, scary, scary virus, because then people will forfeit their liberties from their own family, from their own friends, from their own intimate partners. Uh, and that's we're, we're witnessing the terrifying uh, stretch to which government can go in live time. Yeah, it, absolutely.
0: So we, we are at the end of our time. I could talk with you forever. Um, and I know we're going to be talking on your program coming up soon. So uh, I'll direct people to that in the link under here as well. So um, that is at Viva barneslaw.locals.com. Is that right? That's it. Exactly. That's where we put up everything.
1: And for people, I put up some free exemplars. So you know, a lot of people can't afford to obviously hire legal counsel for handling a lot of this. You can go there. There's no copyright, nothing else. And you can copy and paste however you want. Thousands of people have used it all across the country to success already. So you can go to the board, copy and paste it. Uh, borrow from it however you want. If you if you or a loved one is in some jam, either whether it's an educational institution, a public accommodation, or employment, uh, you can use that to to assert your rights. And it's worked for about 80, 85 percent of the people. And for those that uh, it don't, then we look at representing them where and when we can. Uh, but the fight has just begun, and I think uh, you're right that the wind is on our side.
0: Well, listen. Um, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, besides that, uh, Viva bar, dot Barnes. Sorry viva barneslaw.locals.com besides there is there any other way people follow you
1: uh, i'm on twitter at barnes underscore law as well yep. but the best place is locals that's where i'm at all the time
0: awesome well thanks a lot for your time today and we'll be working together so looking forward to anything you come up with and we'll have you back on if you have a, a big breaking case we're going to want to know about it talk to you about it okay absolutely all right thank you thanks